You're listening to a special early release of Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. I'm the show's creator and host, Farron DeBell. You may know me from one of my previous radio shows, but this show is special. We feature real people, real stories. We want to highlight the triumphs and challenges of hardworking people of color, disabled people, women, LGBTQ people, religious minorities, anyone whose story is often ignored or deemed unimportant. Those stories are important. You're important. We chose June to launch the program because it's the anniversary not only of Stonewall, but of many U.S. and international milestones and heartaches in freedom. Juneteenth, the day slaves in Texas and Louisiana learned they were free in 1865. The Tulsa race riots, when white racists decimated the middle-class black neighborhood known as Black Wall Street in 1921. The little-known story of Irene Morgan, a black woman who, in 1944, refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white couple, was arrested and sued and won 11 years before Rosa Parks made her famous refusal, and Tiananmen Square, where in June of 1989, young protesters opposing the tyrannical Chinese government were shot and killed by armed soldiers and tanks in the streets. You'll hear about all of that and more on this special extended version of Our Truth Today with Baron DeBell. Our regular show comes to you weekly every Sunday starting June 30th, but today we're bringing you a special early release 2019 Pride Extended Edition in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. We put a lot of effort into our show and we hope you enjoy. Let's get started. Yeah, real people, real stories, this is what we know well. Yeah, this is our truth today with Farron DeBell. Time to get it started quick, not just here for gossiping. Everything from entertainment, even talking politics. This for everybody, at the gym or working steady. For your sister, brother, rabbi, even for your granny. Our truth today, trust, you don't want to miss it. Real people, real stories, come through and take a listen. Yeah, follow on IG at our truth today. Welcome to our special early release Pride edition. Happy Pride to everyone out there who celebrates June 28th. It's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, ongoing police harassment of an already ostracized queer community in New York's Greenwich Village caused lesbian, gay, and trans residents and their allies to finally take a stand. After the violent riots, it took a few months, but a somewhat cohesive community was created, including two gay activist organizations and three newspapers. First up today, I had a chance to chat with lesbian activist Tony Armstrong Jr. about growing up as a lesbian in the 70s, gay rights in education, and the women's music scene. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Joining us now is Tony Armstrong Jr., a former high school teacher, LGBTQ activist, producer of lesbian music events, publisher of the magazine Hotwire, the Journal of Women's Music and Culture, one of the founding members of the We Want the Land Coalition, and founder of BLAST, by Lesbian and Straight Together, Women of the Palm Beaches. Wow, you're a busy woman. Welcome, Tony. Hi. Let's start with a little background about you. Tell us about yourself. Uh, I think you got a lot of it in the intro there. I've been an activist for many years. Came out in college in 1973 when I was a freshman. Joined the brand new Gay People's Alliance that was happening at Illinois State in the wake of Stonewall and never looked back. We've been friends for a very long time, and I know you have a deep love for your mother. How did she impact your ability to be yourself? 
It was funny because my mom was also a lesbian, but of the generation where that was not something that was supported, accepted. You couldn't find anybody else if you didn't go to a mafia-run bar or drag bar. So it was very confusing for her. And when I came out, uh, she had a pretty bad reaction to it and took us about a year to resolve it. And it resolved because she got back together with a woman she had been with before. I was going to kill you <laughs> after this horrible year we just had. And within a year after that, she had quit her job in Chicago. And this was in the 70s and moved to California to be with Lois, who she was with until Lois died. Oh, so you had kind of a coming out again journey together. We did. And then it was really pretty smooth sailing, except every time I was able to take a leap forward, it just scared her. She was afraid I would lose my job. She was afraid I would get beaten up, uh, that our family would completely reject me. All the things that, of course, her generation, gay people really had to deal with. But she was really, really proud and really, you know, backed my play even when she was scared. And of course, we had these giant tequila slammer parties at my house, hundreds of women, and she loved to come from California and participate in all of that. (laughs) And when we went to the women's music festivals, I think she settled down quite a bit because she looked around and she saw essentially normal-looking, healthy women of all types, races, uh, coming from all over the country and sometimes international, very talented women, many of them professional women. And all of this really was a reality check for her about where the whole lesbian and gay movement was going. It, after Stonewall, it really was a game changer. Well, let's move on to music. How much of an impact did music have on your life? Fortunately for me, the Lesbian Women's Music Festival started up in the mid-70s. I was able to get in on pretty much from the beginning. Those events blossomed to have literally thousands and thousands of music albums, so many music festivals that you couldn't even attend them all in one year. In the 80s and 90s, there were just dozens every year. And they were very, very lesbian-oriented. Not necessarily lesbian-only, but that was the dominant audience. And that was who the female performers were playing to. And fortunately, the producers of these festivals had this vision that it shouldn't just be women on the stage. It should also be women doing the sound and the lights and the business and the sign language interpreting and every single part of it. Growing up from my early 20s on in that environment made me feel really like I could do anything because everyone around me was doing everything. The music itself, of course, very sustaining. Anybody who's into music understands that it's emotional. And it also led to the creation of Hotwire magazine, which we published out of Chicago for 10 years, uh, 30 issues. We had at any given time about 40 volunteers doing the magazine because all of us had other full-time jobs. And it focused on not just the music, but also the other parts of the lesbian and feminist culture, the films, the bookstores, the radio shows, the writing. Alison Bechtel had her first magazine cover with Hotwire. And of course, now she's Tony Award winning Broadway play, you know, all these really cool and talented women, most of them lesbians, all of them feminists grew up together. Now, as we're all kind of aging out, it's fun to look back. You know, as much as people were saying, oh, women's music is dead in the 90s, it's like, here we are in 2019, and women are still making albums, and festivals are still happening. 
The Michigan Women's Festival ended four years ago, and you and your co-founders have come together to reacquire that same land. Is this a reboot of the Women's Music Festival? What's different? Well, it's not a revival of the Michigan Festival. That went on for 40 years and then definitively ended. I mean, it had a final one. It was really quite the blowout, a wonderful final festival. There were many of us, though, who have spent decades of Augusts on that land. It's about 650 acres, pristine wilderness. It backs up to the Manistee National Forest. It's never been logged. It's never been fracked. It's never been built on. So in this time when woman-hating is really ramping up again really blatantly in the U.S. and in other countries as well, and in the time when human beings seem determined to ruin every single acre on the planet and kill every animal, it felt really important to save these acres. And so that's what we did. We set out to create a coalition of women who don't necessarily agree with each other on anything other than this land ought to be saved for women, for girls, forever. A 501c3 was created. We got a conservation easement from Michigan. It means we pay less taxes on it. And also, even if we, for some reason, can't hold this land, it is safe. It can't be developed. We don't have corporate support. We don't have rich backers. We are just women of all ages who are trying to save this land for the use of women and girls. And now this summer, for the first time, we've been able to get it good enough so that we can welcome women back home. And there's going to be five different events on the land in July and in August. Each one is six days. Each one has a different theme. Each one's run by a different group. I can't wait to go back home. Sounds like an amazing coalition. How can folks help out or get information about the upcoming events? There's a website, www.tlc.org. We want the land coalition, www.tlc.org, that really has like every single thing you would ever want to know on that website about the history, about the policies and the politics and what's happening with conservation easement and the five different events and anyone who wants to get involved Incredible organization. Great cause for women and girls. We want the Land Coalition at www.tlc.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Tony gives us some history on the gay movement in education and where we are today. That's all on Our Truth Today. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Hey, hon. What you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her walk miles a day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at ourtruth.today and conversationswith.net. And we're back with Tony Armstrong Jr., modern-day lesbian pioneer on Our Truth Today. I'm Farron DeBell. 
Tony, let's talk about your work with education. You lived in Chicago most of your life, and you taught at a high school. You were out at school, no? Well, we're, we're going to say yes, but it, it, that's difficult. I got outed at school. It wasn't my choice, and because I was teaching special ed, it was a very, very precarious situation. There were no laws for a long time protecting teachers, and I could have easily just gotten fired immediately, but I didn't. It was a really a don't ask, don't tell situation. In the early 90s, Kevin Jennings in Massachusetts started the whole Gay-Straight Alliance movement and the movement to really insist on equality and visibility within the K through 12 schools, which is, in my opinion, one of the hugest tasks that our generation has ever taken on. Sure, we'll just have the schools be all supportive of gay and lesbian students and teachers. Sure, why not? Well, none of the schools wanted that, needless to say. There was another teacher from my school who also got involved with what was to become Gliss in Chicago. And we both just looked at each other and said, hey, I'll out you, you out me. Our moment is now. Let's go for it. Gliss in Chicago took root with a truly incredible, incredible steering committee. Sometimes you just get dealt a royal flush. People had a whole different set of skills and interests and tolerance for fear and tolerance for grunt work. And we just went for it, you know, with no funding externally, no grants, no nothing like that. Patricia Tommaso made it her personal mission to take on the Chicago Public School System Teachers Union. Really, she should get the credit for getting domestic partnership benefits and protections for Chicago public school teachers, which is the third biggest school system in the in the nation. So a small group of us took on the development of the gay-straight alliances within the schools, which was at once exhilarating and fun and hilarious and also terrifying because the administrators pretty uniformly were absolutely opposed. Right. And so the different students in, within the city and within the suburbs, um, we got together twice a year at DePaul University for youth leadership summits. And the goal of those wasn't to have some big conference with lots of youth. It was to find the the ones that would grow up to be Tracy Bame, you know, and get them together when they're 14, 15, 16. So they were already doing things within their schools. Uh, one had a column in a newspaper and another one had gotten a display case for uh, Gay and Lesbian History Month in October. And when we got the kids all together and they were like, oh, wait, I didn't even think we could do that. And hey, how about that? <laughs> you know, sometimes we help the students um, connect with lawyers when the administrators of their schools really needed to understand that the Federal Equal Access Act did not permit them to say they would not have a GSA. Across the board, the GSAs were really heavily supported by straight female students. And um, I can remember one year at our school where all of the gay and lesbian kids were too scared to be in the yearbook picture. And all the straight girl students came out with our big rainbow flag and we were in the yearbook anyway. I remember, I think it was almost 20 years ago now, we were doing a press conference together at a city high school with their Gay-Straight Alliance. In the beginning, it was fully supported by local administration, but at some point during the day, word came down from high above that this wasn't going to be allowed. Do you remember that? I do, and, and it wasn't just one. We had at the school where I taught, we were hosting the all-GSA Chicagoland annual dance, and 
our dance was threatened to be picketed and the picketers had called the media. We managed to talk down the main organizer and they pulled the plug and the media came anyway and the students brought out pizza to the media. We've come a long way. Do you think high school students today are comfortable or feel safe in their own skin? And 50 years after Stonewall, do they understand what came before them to get to this point? I don't think they're all so comfortable. I think that we're in a time of incredible backlash again. In er certain urban areas that made a lot of progress, there is really a lot of more freedom and less fear for the students. But anyone who's in an area that's very conservative, those students are not safe. They do not feel comfortable at all. We really still have our work cut out for us, I think, in supporting and getting the word out. For the ones who have been able to reap the benefits of what earlier generations did. And that's earlier than me and you. When I was their age, I didn't care about history either. I didn't care about who the four people were who did anything. I just wanted to do and I wanted to live my life and I wanted to date girls and get on with it, you know. So I don't blame them at all. I feel like most people aren't interested in history until they get significantly older Every now and again, you find a young person who really gets it, that if they learn what happened before, it's really cool, and they can build on that and not have to reinvent certain wheels. But for the most part, go, 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 young people. Follow your vision. Tony, you're a remarkable woman. I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you taking time out for us today on Our Truth Today. Oh, anytime. I love all the work that you do, always and forever. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Hey, this is Ellen DeGeneres. We all have a vital role to play in helping California communities, firefighters, and first responders battling wildfires throughout the state. In this time of crisis, the entertainment community unites in support of those keeping us safe. Join us at musicforrelief.org fire and give to provide firefighters with the critical equipment they need to protect our neighborhoods. That's musicforrelief.org fire. Thanks. In less than 20 years, the world moved from zero countries, allowing gay marriage to almost 30. Taiwan is the latest to make the move, and now there is a country on every continent permitting such marriages, with South Africa and New Zealand being the outliers on their continent. On the other side of the coin, according to USA Today, there are 70 countries where simply being gay is a crime, but in 13 Asian and African countries, it is punishable by death. The African nation of Botswana recently decriminalized homosexuality. Perhaps the tides are changing. The Hong Kong High Court of Appeal ruled this month in favor of a gay civil servant who sued for spousal benefits for him and his British husband. The ruling does not go as far as giving same-sex marriage rights in the city, but advocates says it is a strong step in the right direction. Lutia Shand, perhaps India's first openly gay athlete, says she is experiencing condemnation from her family after coming out last month. India decriminalized same-sex relationship last year. The 23-year-old track and field star says she loves a woman in her village. Shand's father told the Times of India that the women have ruined the reputation of their village. Shand's mother said she forbids the two to marry. That's your international news on our truth today. I'm Victor Ugo Njoko from Nigeria. Visit us online at OurTruth.today.
and conversationswith.net. I had a chance to catch up with Tracy Baim, the publisher of the Chicago Reader newspaper, about the history of gay rights activism, division in the community, and marriage equality. Welcome back to Our Truth Today. I'm Farron DeBell with Tracy Bame, publisher of the Alternative Newsweekly Chicago Reader, owner and co-founder of the Windy City Times, author, filmmaker, historian, activist. Glad to see you again, Tracy. Thanks for having me on. It's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, too. So, Professor Bame, give us a 101 course on Stonewall. What was it? Why did it happen? And why is it so significant? It's interesting. At the time when it happened in June of 1969 in New York City at a mafia-owned gay bar called the Stonewall Inn, People that were part of it didn't necessarily know what they were part of. And certainly people across the country, including in Chicago, kind of made note of it. You know, in the Mattachine Midwest newsletter, they noted that there was some kind of rebellion happening at Stonewall. But nobody really understood its ramifications, I think, till a little bit later. It was a little dive bar in Greenwich Village. Thousands of people say in retrospect that they were there, but there were probably hundreds there that evening in both the bar as well as outside of the bar because people were just hanging out on a June night in New York City. And like many nights in New York City and Chicago and other places, the police decided to raid the bar that night. They did not have very many of them with them. Some of the folks started to rebel, um, including trans women of color who were there, drag queens, butch lesbians, cisgender white gay men. Uh, They fought back. Nobody knows exactly who threw the first stone. There's a rumor that it was a butch lesbian, rumors that it was a transgender woman of color. It lasted multiple nights, and in that particular night, the cops had to barricade themselves inside the Stonewall Inn because they were afraid. They say they were afraid for their lives. And so eventually backups came, and there was like a lot of stuff going on in the streets. People were throwing um, copper pennies at the cops. Um, a, a, a parking meter or some structure was thrown into the windows. I mean, it was really a riot. And it was mostly younger, younger folks that were, had nothing to lose, that were, there were street kids, a lot of them, that were fighting against, quote unquote, the man. And ultimately, within a year, there were many organizations that were founded. Some had been pre-Stonewall, but many others founded post-Stonewall. And in Chicago, the, the next year, to mark the Stonewall anniversary, there was a march. And it, the next day, there was ones in San Francisco, LA, and New York. And that's really what has morphed into our Pride Parade. Our march was um, from Bughouse Square to, to downtown, and anywhere from 100 to 200 people were uh, reported to have been there. How did it impact other places around the country? I think once the word spread, and especially on that year anniversary, that's when you would say that the movement was truly birthed. The seeds had been planted in 1924 in Chicago with Henry Gerber, the postal worker, starting the first known gay rights organization in the country out of Chicago. That was squashed by police as well. And there were fits and starts to the movement and and some significant movement building happening in the 50s and 60s. There were marches in Philadelphia on the Independence Hall. There were marches in Washington, literally just like 12 people in suits and dresses in front of the White House or the other locations. So there had been people doing stuff, but it was only a handful of people in any one city. Stonewall, as a moment in time, just pivoted the movement to a much larger place, but it could not have happened in isolation. The reason 1969 happened, when and how it did, was because you know the baby boomers were coming of age. Many of them had learned or been motivated by the anti-Vietnam War protests, the civil rights movement for African Americans, the women's rights movement, immigration rights fights. So all of them 
either they had been trained in those movements or they certainly had been informed by them. And there was just this rebellious atmosphere out there that culminated in the end of the 1960s with the LGBT movement saying, it's my time. So in other protests, you know, in the 60s, certainly we saw uh, kind of violent police pushbacks. Um, did the police just give in or what was the end result? Well, in this particular case, the police were so outnumbered at the physical altercations that were happening could have easily escalated to, to death. Um, it's kind of shocking when you hear reports that some of that didn't happen on either side. I mean, there had not really been a precedent for that in gay bars. Most gay bars that were raided, it was a very passive situation. People were terrified for their lives and their jobs and their marriages and their children's custody and all sorts of other things. So when you hear reports of those raids, even going up into the 80s in Chicago, there had never really been a, a solid pushback. Stonewall was an exception, so I don't think the police were expecting anything. Well, that was a, a turning point in New York, and you've been instrumental in several turning points in Chicago, certainly in gay media. Uh, you were instrumental in turning gay media in Chicago into real business. Tell us about those early days. <laughs> well, there were a lot of gay publications. In fact, Henry Gerber had a publication when he did his organization, and then Mattachine Midwest had newsletters. There were, in the 1970s, a lot of different newspapers that were started and, and ended and started and ended. When I started in 1984, right out of college, I started at Gay Life newspaper owned by Chuck Renslow. About a year later, I left with a few other people to start Windy City Times. I would say I have not very much business acumen in the traditional sense, but I've... You're still around. I'm still around. <laughs> I'm more of a survivor, and I'm one who does things necessary to, to make that happen and do the journalism I want to do. Now my role with the reader is interesting because I really was brought in just on the business side. So my role now is really to save the jobs of journalists, not to be a journalist. Let's talk more about your early days in getting into journalism. Uh, what inspired you to get into journalism? I definitely haven't had inspiration at home. My, my mother, Joy Darrow, was a journalist, and she had been both in traditional media and, and also uh, community media. She had been at the Tribune and then was managing editor of the Chicago Defender for a few years when I was young. And my stepfather was at the Tribune for 29 years, and even my birth father, he's a photographer. So for sure, my stepfather and my mother very much influenced me in a, a journalism path. Starting at age 10, that's all I wanted to be. And uh, I went to journalism school in Des Moines, Iowa, came back to Chicago, and was really lucky that my mother knew there was even a gay press. I didn't know at that point there was a gay press. And I was set on not really being a journalist because I was openly gay, and there were so few role models in the mainstream media that were openly gay. So was mom supportive of your lifestyle your entire life? Yeah, I mean, when I first came out in early years of college, she actually asked one of her gay friends to ask me, Jay Jackson, if I was gay. And I said, if my mom wants to know if I'm gay, she can ask me herself. But I think in the, the first response to moms even today is you don't want your kids to have a rough time. As soon as I just acknowledged it, it we just moved on. And she always accepted my partners, my friends. And she had so many gay and lesbian friends, it would have been the most hypocritical thing for her not to have accepted me. Being a gay journalist in the 80s must have been exciting, frightening, depressing all at the same time. As you look back, what are some of your vivid memories? I definitely liken it to be being dropped into a war zone in the middle of a country that doesn't know it's at war. Most of the mainstream media, most people in society were not acknowledging what was going on. It may be even similar to the, to the concentration camps we have with kids in this country right now. Kids and families in, in the southern border are in concentration camps. 
and we're kind of all, we feel impotent on, on what to do. We were in the middle of a crisis. The HIV AIDS crisis was just really impacting Chicago as I started in 84. It had hit the coast a little harder first. And then Chicago in 1984, had, when I started, had fewer than 100 diagnosed cases. And that was obviously quickly escalating. People that were colleagues of mine at Winnie City Times and the co-founder of Winnie City Times as well. But it, as a journalist, what you knew your role was was to document it because nobody else was. Even those who were were doing it through horrible lenses, homophobia, transphobia, AIDS phobia, all that was really very real in the media then and in society. So our role as journalists, especially in a pre-internet, pre-social media age, was to be a curator of what was going on in the community in any one day, any one week. Take photos of people before they die, document their lives before they die so that history could tell their stories. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Homelessness. It may be hard for you to imagine, but the fastest growing group of homeless people are under the age of six. A six-year-old. Is this what you think of when you think of homelessness? If you or someone you know needs help getting their kids into school, please call the Illinois State Board of Education Homeless Coordinator at 1-800-215-6379. Hey, I'm Constance Wu. Did you know that Crazy Rich Asians was a book before it became a movie? You can still find books at the library, but libraries have so much more, including educational programs for families and opportunities for community engagement and professional development. So visit your library today. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on Conversations with .net. How do you toe the line between journalist and activist? Just like women were, well, you can't, you know, you can't objectively cover women's issues or African-Americans, you know, you have a bias. I already had those two strikes of being female and being LGBTQ. So I didn't really worry about it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the best stories I can. I'm going to get the sides that matter. I don't have to get an anti-gay quote every time I'm doing a story. But you know what? When Hiram Crawford, an anti-gay pastor, would protest at City Hall, I'd take his photo and get a quote. And over the course of 35 years, certainly I've made mistakes. But over that course, I've also been as fair as possible to the stories and the, and the things that we're doing and amplifying voices. In the meantime, I also stepped outside of my bat cave to be an organizer sometimes of the March on Springfield for Marriage Equality. Tell us about that journey. In 2013, there was a really strong effort, but it was mostly an insider game. It was lobbyists and organizations working in Springfield. So I went down there for the last couple days of the session, and it was kind of frustrating for me to watch because it was such an insider game. I remembered that spring where anti-gay anti forces would be protesting at, at legislative offices, and the gay group said, oh, no, we don't need to show up. We got this. We got this. Don't worry. But some gay activists were like, no, we need an outsider game. So Gay Liberation Network and others would show up in their ragtag team and protest against the protesters. Um, and they were trying hard, but they were not very supported by the institutional gay community. You needed those people willing to compromise and, and put on a suit or dress. But you also needed people agitating. The day before the legislative session was ending, it was pretty apparent that it was going to be punted, that they weren't going to vote for it. So I heard people, organizers, not to be named, on the phone trying to organize buses from Chicago. I think they organized two buses and only one ended up coming and it was half full. 
I mean, it was a work day the day before on a Friday trying to get people to Springfield. It didn't get voted on. There was no vote at all. Democrats were in control. They had the governor's office, state senate, and state house. They had promised many things to the community, and this was one of them. Before I went home that night in the hotel we had been in at Springfield, I wrote this scathing editorial attacking the leadership of the lobbying effort. And unfortunately, you know, my main target was Greg Harris, the state representative, because he was the most high-profile person behind this. But it wasn't personal to Greg. But it was this long thing about why we needed this now, because there were people whose lives were, they were dying, and they needed the marriage rights um, that, that came with it. And so they deserved it to happen sooner rather than later. So really quickly, I called Greg and said, you know, Greg, this, you know this wasn't personal. This is your job. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said kind of offhand, you know, if 10,000 people had showed up in Springfield uh, last Friday, would the vote have happened? And he said, it probably. And I said, okay, I'm going to take you at your word. Then I started to ask a lot of gay organizations and leaders about it, and they were all like, you're not going to get people to Springfield. We've never gotten more than a few buses to Springfield for anything gay. And the biggest event had ever been done was by unions. Very very few, if any, leaders were and organizations were willing to sign on that month. They all had their own housekeeping to do. Like, they've messed up. They knew they hadn't done a good coalition with people of color, gay organizations, with any kind of street game. So the blame game started. Um, people started to scapegoat African-American politicians, even though most of them did support it, and it was mostly white people who weren't. So it was like all this crap going on in June. But I, meanwhile, I was just like, I'm going to do this march. I know my community. They are motivated out of anger. So I spent four months traveling the state. I recruited 13 co-chairs uh, from across the state to help me. And I had a tremendous amount of support from the gay organizations in Springfield. They'd been burned so many times by Chicagoans. I knew a few of them, luckily. And then I met with them, and I went down there, and I promised them a voice on the stage. I promised them a, a voice at the table. And I said, you won't have to raise a nickel. I think we all in spent about $45,000. Meanwhile, the lobbying effort took almost $2 million. And both were needed, as well as the lawsuits. Because what happened was more than 5,000 people showed up in the rain and cold on October, I think it was October 22nd, 2013. It was phenomenal. Nobody could believe all these people turned out. And in the middle of the day, a lot of church groups, union groups, synagogues, we had, we had an amazing show from allies and people from across the state, even from a couple neighboring states who wanted Illinois to have this. So ultimately, the event was extremely successful. The anti-gays came the next day, and they were pitiful in terms of their numbers. We almost circled the Capitol um, in our march, and then um, it passed the next week. So yeah, I fought for it because of people like Vernita Gray, who a, just a, a short time after that law passed, she, she and her partner Pat Ewart became the first married couple in Illinois, same sex. And Vernita died a few weeks later. And it was so important. And she actually spoke at the march. She was, that was her last public speaking gig. You know, one of the reasons that I think that you are so respected in so many circles is because you are often so selfless. And I know you've been personally supportive of me and some of my friends. Um, how do you balance that village mentality with self-help? <laughs> I probably need self-help. But to me, I, am, I feel the luckiest person in terms of accidentally having this career that I have and the ability to do what I love and also do fun things. So I'm not one-dimensional in terms of this community and this newspaper thing, and I have amazing friends. But I also feel like what I do is my work and my hobby all in one. To me, it's, it's like breathing, um, telling stories or, or in different ways. So it might be a book, a movie, or a 500-word article, or in this case with the reader uh, allowing for space for other people to tell stories. 
change happens that way. One same-sex marriage at a time that transforms a family. One person who accepts who they are as a transgender woman at a time. We internally accept and our families accept that's where society changes. It's a little different than the racial justice movement. It's more similar maybe to the women's rights movement, but even not, it's still different because we were mostly raised by people who are not like us. So our battles are just different and a lot of it's internal. Tracy, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on Our Truth Today. Yeah, thanks. Good luck with the show. Coming up on Our Truth Today with Baron DeBell. Coming up after the break, queer entertainment. Trans actress entertainer Honey West talks about her 30-year career in music, acting, and radio. And author Eddie Pierce talks about his new book, Love Changes, and a new children's book. Plus, a look at issues facing older LGBT Americans. We'll be right back. I know the consequences. Journalists imprisoned. Books censored. Films banned from theaters. These are normal in Iran where I'm from. Back home, these were our reality. This is why freedom of speech is so important to me. We must cherish it and never take it for granted. This message is brought to you by the NAB Education Foundation and the Broadcast Education Association. Hello, I'm Emilio Estevez. My new film, The Public, is a love letter to the place in your community where facts live, curiosity is encouraged, and all are welcome your public library. So visit, volunteer, advocate, and make some noise. Learn more about the American Library Association at ALA.org. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Baron DeBell on conversationswith.net. That's a bit of the incomparable Honey West. How are you? <laughs> a tramp, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> a ravishing tramp, as you know. Oh, thank you. It's been so long. I know. It's been a long time. So you're an actress, a cabaret singer, an event planner, all-around entertainer. What are you working on now? Well, actually, I'm writing a show. My hope is to tell my story and to show that I'm still here, that I survived. I went through many, many, many hard years trying to figure out who I was. I found out probably in the last 15 years that I was dyslexic. Wow. And, you know, I was born in 61, and we didn't really have dyslexia. We didn't have transgender. We didn't, you know, we were very void of a lot of things that that I was. But what I did come to realize at a young age is that I was lazy and I was dumb because if you were dyslexic back then that's what you were right and I believed it I can't read as fast as other kids I have to hear things sometimes two or three times before it sinks in I make lists now looking back I see the tools that I accumulated making lists and arriving at places early. I went to a high school filled with truly one of the most inclusive melting pot we've ever seen. There were people of color. There were people with uh, different disabilities. I was able to kind of slip through all the cracks. In a good way or a bad way? 
in a good way. Okay. You good. know, I was um, I was bullied to some extent. My objective for a good part of my growing up years was to not cause attention to myself. Mm-hmm. I had the ability as a sissy boy or an effeminate boy to provoke people just by walking in the room. Early on, I learned to hide and lie about who I was. I would assume that a lot of marginalized people have felt that same way, where just walking into a room, you provoke a response. There's a certain point where to survive, you have to kind of adopt the environment you're in. I have a good percentage of white privilege as well as passing privilege. I can pretty much get away with going to the store, not being bothered, but there's always that double brain. One brain is a person going to the store to buy groceries. The other brain is on guard and watching. Who's in the parking lot? Who's around my car? When I get out, how far is the door? Somebody drops a can of peas. Was that for me? Is somebody coming? Or somebody yells at a child? And you're always on guard. That always on guard to survive that year, those decades, that time in my life, I had to accept where I was. I had to accept that that was people's opinion of myself. To, to rise up through that and to say, no, I get to decide who I am. Uh, that's the point that I'm coming to in my life now. I started transitioning at 41, and even after I had been performing as a female character for years, I had buried myself so deep uh, that it took that long. Alexander Billings and I were sitting at Father and Son up on Milwaukee. The depression that I was going through had really deepened and I had spent months in bed. I would get out of bed, take a shower, put on makeup, go to work or go to the radio and then I would get right back in bed. I didn't want to kill myself but I wanted to die. I prayed I wouldn't wake up. Because the life that I was experiencing at the time, if that's all there was, it wasn't enough for me. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Be the someone who gives their time. Be the someone who lends an ear. Be the someone who takes a step. This is Christina Ricci with Rain asking you to join the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your community. Log on to RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G, to learn how you can be the someone. This message brought to you by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network and this station. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on conversationswith.net. There are different statistics for the trans community. On the low end is 41% of my community attempt or succeed at committing suicide. When you add lack of health care or lack of proper health care, violence, murder, 
even if you want to split the difference over half of my community doesn't make it. And that rises significantly for trans women of color. So the fact that I'm here and I survived means something. If I didn't live in a community that very often embraced me, I would not be here. So I don't want to say Nebraska or Kentucky, or, but some place that's smaller and smaller-minded and has less information. If I had have been born there and hadn't gotten out, I don't think I would be here today. So what do those kids need to do? What do those kids need to do? Get out, get to a bigger city, find or find a community no matter what size the town or the city or the state is to find a community that that will embrace them you know at least if not embrace them at least not knock them down to know that there are tens of thousands of children on the street as young as 12 14 years old that were kicked out of their house their parents disposed of them because they were LGBT. I'm sure that's still the majority of parents, but one thing that has been sort of refreshing for me, especially with uh, trans kids, is to see there are many more parents today who are openly accepting their transgender kids at a very young age. What, what do you think made that change? Honestly, I don't know. It, it makes me very emotional I think how different my life would have been had I been embraced or acknowledged, seen on any level at that age. No one truly knows the gender of their child until the child tells them. We're all female basically in the womb for the first 12 weeks. If testosterone is introduced to the fetus, either through chromosomes or hormones or the DNA strain, the, the ovaries will drop and become testicles. The labia majora will fuse and become a scrotum. The clitoris will elongate and become a penis. The final step is that the female brain will change to a male brain. If that doesn't happen, because gender is stored in the brain, you have a child born seeing, touching, and experiencing the world as a female with somewhat male characteristics of their body. But we're born of the exact same materials in the exact same way we're an atypical result. We're not wrong, we're not bad, we're not freaky, we're not scary, we're just not typical. There's no 100% male or female the only reason that men have nipples is because they started female. They don't need them to breastfeed. That's what nipples are for. So when you look at how closely we all are related when it comes to gender, it really demystifies. You were a female impersonator initially, and so you were already physically in the physical world living as a woman for a portion of the day. Was it different when you then made that acceptance? Of oh, film? yes. 
Oh, yes, completely. You know, as a female impersonator or a persona, I was a boy pretending to be a character, like any actor. I put on Honey West, I performed, and then I went home. Then when I started doing acting roles, I was a boy pretending to be Honey West, pretending to be a character. So there was a middleman. The middleman was a girl. As I started to transition, the, <clears throat> the character and the, the person started to meld together. So then I was just a person. I was just a female performing so there wasn't a gimmick, there wasn't a trick, there wasn't a toolbox. And what's interesting about being trans now as an actor, as a singer, is that for most of my life, I was considered unmarketable. That's the reason I created a character. I took the deficits of being softer, being more feminine, and I turned them into an asset. But they were, there was still a ceiling on what I did. So being unmarketable as a boy, unmarketable as a drag queen at the time, and unmarketable as a transgendered woman, now all of a sudden the world has flipped upside down and I'm in the same game but the rules changed in my favor. Now not only is are people okay with me being transgender, they're actually looking for me. Just this week, I was talking with a friend. I was watching the new Tales from the City. Have you yeah. seen that yet? Oh, I have Netflix? not. Okay, it's not wonderful. And I was complaining that the trans characters aren't played by trans people. And yeah. I said to a friend, it's ridiculous in this day and age to think that they wouldn't use transgender people for trans characters. And he said that that would be great, but also we're going to know that we've really made it when they choose trans characters for straight roles. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on where we are in heading toward that? I have a probably a less popular um, opinion, but sometimes it's it's harder for some casting people to find the right trans person to play a trans role. I don't want it flipped on me that well. Thanks for showing up at the audition, but we have no trans roles. I want to be considered, you know, gay men have been playing straight for decades. <clears throat> straight men have played gay. You know, Jeffrey Tambor played the character Mara. And I believed, you know, sadly... Um, Jeffrey turned out to be someone completely different personally and there were the issues on the set and and I would not want to see him now do anything but I believed Mara and I believed and I saw the qualities that I have that I shared with Mara and I was perfectly okay with him being a heterosexual or cisgender male playing a trans character because it made sense to me and I saw authenticity and I saw my truth.
So would it be incredible to see every trans character played by a trans person? Absolutely. I would love that. I would love more opportunities. If we want our stories told, and we want them told authentically, there's sometimes, I believe, right now maybe, I think those decisions are are made. You have to say, well, if I don't see myself on on stage, why not? And there's... I've thought a lot about this. There's, you know, someone has to write that story. So if somebody doesn't know me personally or anybody in my community, they're not going to write a story for me or about me. But say somebody does write it, then they've got to get somebody that's willing to take a chance and put it in their theater. Then that theater person has to find backers that are willing to put their money behind that story, then you've got to have somebody to be able to cast it and direct it appropriately. It's a village to get a more diverse rep- representation on stage. And everybody is, is biting their nails, taking a risk to tell the truth, to tell an honest story. Now, in Chicago, we're making huge strides. Porchlight does a lot of diverse casting, and uh, <clears throat> I just got to play a couple roles in Gypsy as Electra and Mrs. Cratchit. Ife Butler, an African-American woman who is wildly uh, experienced and seasoned in, in the theater, got to play the lead role of Rose. You know, Madame Rose, which people had told her over the years, um, well, what else would you like to do? When she said that she'd like to play Mama Rose. But Porchlight said, no, let's do it. And it was incredible. It was incredible. People aren't ready for what's unfamiliar, but it's unfamiliar because nobody does it. In our early days as friends, I remember a battle over the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, or ENDA, and the gay elite argued that transgender protections couldn't be fought for because it was too avant-garde or could never pass. What was or what is the schism in the LGBT community between the LGB and T populations? When I started transitioning, and the first time I started to tell people that I was trans, um, I would get from some people opposition, you know, from gay men who said, you know, you're not transgender, you're just, you're just another gay boy trying to make it easier on yourself, <laughs> or, you know. Yeah. Um, like that's easier. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, it's certainly not, you know, it's not easier, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of easier. But the bisexual community has heard that also. There's no such thing as bisexuality. Right. You have to make a choice. And by the time I figured out what trans meant to me, and traditionally for that time period, 
I finally was like, hoo-hoo, I get it now. I'm fully fleshed out in my skin. And then this younger generations, younger generations came along and they're like, yeah, that's great. There's transgender and there's also 18 other right. uh, definitions of of who you can be. And at first it kind of, it kind of really put me off a little bit. I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. I just figured this out. And respectfully, whoever you decide you are, I'm going to respect and honor that. How did you feel when Caitlyn Jenner came out and that was hugely popular nationwide? I don't know Caitlyn Jenner, but I do know that Caitlyn, as a young athlete, appeared on my Weedy Box when I was a child. That was the golden boy at the time. That's what we were all supposed to emulate. Bruce Jenner was that perfect, handsome young man that we all wanted to emulate. That's who we were supposed to be. When Bruce decided to transition, it was, it was shocking when Caitlin got it wrong a lot. I had to understand that Caitlin had grown up in this celebrity bubble, literally living on a hill. To not understand our community or the struggles of our community was something that I had trouble judging her for because I think she was doing the best she could. I did get upset and I did get frustrated with her. But I do know this. When she made that speech at the ESPNs, is that the sports thing? ESPs? ESPs. ES... P-Y. P-Y. Okay, that's how unsportsly <laughs> I am. When she stood before all of her colleagues, past, present, and up-and-coming athletes in that gorgeous gown and did this beautiful speech, she did more for bringing recognition to our community in I don't even know how long the speech was, five minutes, ten minutes, than some activists have been able to do for decades of their life. So the visibility and the acknowledgement, the recognition she got for transitioning, I have to respect how that contributed to our journey. Just last month, the body of 17-year-old Mercedes Williamson, a transgender young woman of color, was found in a field in Mississippi, stabbed to death. I also want to tell you about Sam Taub, a 15-year-old transgender young man from Bloomfield, Michigan. In early April, Sam took his own life. Now, Sam's story haunts me in particular because his death came just a few days before ABC aired my interview with Diane Sawyer. Every time something like this happens, people wonder, could it have been different if spotlighting this issue with more attention could have changed the way things happen? We'll never know. If there's one thing I do know about my life, it is the power of the spotlight. Sometimes it gets overwhelming. 
But with attention comes responsibility. As a group, as athletes, how you conduct your lives, what you say, what you do, is absorbed and observed by millions of people, especially young people. I know I'm clear with my responsibility in going forward to tell my story the right way for me, to keep learning, to do whatever I can to reshape the landscape of how trans issues are viewed, how trans people are treated, and then more broadly, to promote a very simple idea, accepting people for who they are. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on ConversationsWith.net. We are 50 years past the Stonewall Uprising, so it should be no surprise that the number of aging LGBT Americans is growing. AARP estimates nearly one million of their members identify as LGBT. In the Maintaining Dignity survey of members, the organization identified welcoming long-term care, affordable housing, and social isolation as the three areas in which aging LGBT members needed the most support. Nee Quarterlake-Cordy, AARP National LGBT Liaison, said that while 83% of those surveyed said they are in a community that is at least somewhat LGBT-friendly, those who are Black and Latino have greater worries about aging and safety because of the intersection between homophobia and racism. We saw evidence of fear around compound discrimination. Discrimination based upon one's race and ethnicity in addition to one's sexual orientation and gender identity. Years ago, the unsubstantiated estimate for the number of gay Americans was 10%. The Obama administration had considered asking a pointed question on the 2020 census, but Aaron Tax, director of advocacy for SAGE Services, says that's no longer likely. There was some level of expectation that 2020 might be the first year in which LGBT folks might be counted in the census. That's certainly not the case in this administration. And we that was one of the first things the Trump administration did do was put a stop to any collection of LGBT data in the census. Tax says the Trump administration also worked to remove LGBT identification from the national survey that determines what additional resources are provided for low-income older Americans. The Trump administration mostly successfully removed an LGBT question from a survey called the National Survey of Older Americans Act Participants. Mm -hmm. And that's a survey that measures the efficacy of federally funded aging programs funded by the Older Americans Act. The Obama administration had included that LGBT question in the survey. And the Trump administration made one change and one change only to the survey that's more than 100 pages long because they said it was too burdensome, which was the removal of the LGBT question. We fought back along with our allies and got LGB put back in. But unfortunately, the administration, I guess it's pretty obvious, really does not like transgender people and has succeeded in keeping that question out. Kim Aquaviva, professor at George Washington University School of Nursing, told KHN that aging LGBT Americans are concerned about discrimination in healthcare. So I think, you know, the, the most common thing that LGBTQ folks fear is that covert discrimination. So at a vulnerable time in your life when you need palliative care or hospice care, uh, you're facing a serious illness, the idea of seeking out care from a provider that you don't really know if they'll be accepting or not can make you feel even more vulnerable. So for example, if you walk into a clinic and the intake form says, you know, married, single, widowed, divorced, or let's say that there's only two boxes to check for gender, male, female, 
automatically people begin getting a picture of how inclusive that provider is. Discrimination um, at the end of life in terms of hospice and palliative care can look a lot of different ways. It could look like um, not treating a couple as a couple. Um, microaggressions, you know, constantly thinking that two women who are together are sisters as opposed uh, over and over and over again, so the default assumption. Um, and those things pile up. The courts have issued mixed rulings on whether LGBT Americans are protected in everyday rights like employment and housing. A married lesbian couple in Missouri lost their case in federal court against Friendship Village, an assisted living community, in which they had hoped to retire. Mary Walsh and Beverly Nance, legally married for 10 years, were denied housing at Friendship Village when the complex found that the women were in a lesbian relationship. The community told the women that they only allowed cohabitation between a married man and woman. Jay Wardensky, the women's attorney, said the local ordinances sometimes don't protect LGBT people from discrimination. Even St. Louis County, where uh, Friendship Village is located, has a local non-discrimination ordinance that prohibits sexual orientation discrimination and Friendship Village was aware of that, and HUD actually did an investigation of this complaint before we filed a lawsuit, uh, and it was revealed that they just took the risk because the protections weren't robust enough that they they just, despite having knowledge of the local protections, um, you know, calculated that they would prefer to keep this discriminatory policy on the books rather than comply. This case will likely be determined when the Supreme Court takes up whether sexual orientation and gender identity is covered in existing employment non-discrimination laws next term. For more news for and from diverse voices, visit us online at OurTruth.Today. For Our Truth Today, I'm Farron DeBell. Author Eddie Pierce Jr. Welcome to Our Truth Today. Thank you for the opportunity. How have you been? I've been great, just busy, but in a great way. And when we first met, we were both studying writing, and now you're successful as an author, an entrepreneur. Rainbow Room Publishing has been around for seven years now. How did that come about? Well, largely it just started as a dream of seeing my own writing published, and one thing led to another, and I saw that I had an opportunity to help others do the same, and here we are eight years later. And tell us about your first book. I often say it was a purely cathartic experience. It was uh, meant to help me to write through some things, get through some things. I never really intended to share it. Um, long story short, it was something that I started on a plane um, on a ride to Vegas uh, some years ago. And I wrote for about maybe 10 pages or so. And then when I got to the master's program at Chicago State University, the graduation requirement was to complete a creative work, so a novel. One thing became, you know, uh, something to do on a plane all the way up into a physical book that's actually out, still being sold, still being promoted. You published uh, the Love Trilogy, starting with Love Something Infinite and most recently Love Changes. You call them fictional autobiographies. What exactly does that mean? It is a work that borrows from actual events, but there is a considerable amount of poetic license taken. Um, a number of names, events, places, things have been changed. Um, what to protect was the innocent? Yes, exactly. Everybody, everybody gets that part, yes. Some of my experiences, even if you read the stories and how they've been fictionalized in the book, um, they were pretty difficult, challenging, to say the least. And I loved that seeing something that I once saw as such an ugly reality turned into a beautiful piece of work. And so what I was left with was the emotional um, truths 
your life, uh, you're openly gay, Christian, HIV positive. How do those three identities kind of play together? You almost go through two stages of coming out. Uh, you come out to the world as a same gender loving gay man, and then you come out to that community particularly, but to the world at large, that you're positive. And so all of it was just really, um, I see it as stepping stones. I see all of those different labels and identities as things that I used to think had to be separate, had to be treated separately, uh, now really integrating. And it's something that definitely, I think, happens in my work. Uh, that character also, you know, looks at how his faith helps to reconcile his sexuality and his uh, spirituality. And he, might, like myself, is an author, he is a writer, and the writing is an exercise that he undergoes to help me, him to make that reconciliation happen. Why do you think it's important to be out? You are limiting yourself by not being your most true self. Uh, some of your art, some of your talents, some of your gifts, some of your truths, they just can't come out, can't operate. You can't reap the benefits of them um, if you're not living them. You know, and so I guess that's how it all comes together for me. And we've heard quite a bit in preparation for this show about folks talking about the extra challenges for queers of color, from acceptance from advertisers to dating to higher suicide rates. Being a person of color and writing about uh, queer characters of color, how is the series received? Probably one of the biggest experiences for me was that the church I was attending at the time, uh, predominantly straight, black, and the pastor, she came to me after reading it, and she thanked me for this new perspective she had on what it would be like to be that gay person in a straight church. And I've had other people that looked at the character struggling with becoming HIV positive, a learner that he is, and saying how it gave them a greater appreciation for people in their own lives, people who have passed, how strong they now knew that person to be, knowing that they were dealing with all of this alone. Um, I've seen where for other people, if nothing else, the book itself is serving as an example that if this little black boy from the west side of Chicago can do it, who can't? So what's coming next for Rainbow Room Publishing? The most immediate event will be uh, duplicating what we just did uh, this uh, May with New York Times bestselling author James O'Hardy. We were able to bring him to Chicago um, with the help of a lot of local support, local sponsors. And so we're going to duplicate that event in Dallas, Texas. And we're aiming for their Black Gay Pride weekend. He actually is going to be taking on ghostwriting projects writing coaching projects, editing, things of that nature um, under the company, um, but it will give many authors the opportunity to work with the master. Uh, in addition to that, um, working with a local author actually who is uh, already has already produced and published two children's books. Um, it's an amazing series, Jayla's Johns. Uh, basically what it is is that there's a young black girl whose aunt Yaya magically transports her across the country to all the different states of the country, but they look at each state from the perspective of African-American history. A couple other things, but the other thing that I'm probably the most excited about is a publishing summit that's being planned for November, uh, coinciding with November Novel Writers Month. And basically what it is, is it's a conference 
in which we will be inviting out all aspiring writers, published writers, people that have any connection to the field, editors, graphic artists, things of that nature. And it will just be a great, awesome networking event for anyone that wants to get their work done. They'll be right in the space, trading off information, ideally, with people that can get it done. Excellent. So if people want more information about any of your new projects or if they want to information about the summit how can they get that if you're following uh the website www.rainbowroompublishing.com you're seeing all of the products the services some of the endorsements things of that nature and uh following me on social media uh, you can also find the company under the same name on social media rainbowroompublishing.com all right and we'll definitely link to your site from ours as well eddie thanks so much for being with us today thank you for having me and we're nearing the end of our special pride 2019 extended version of our truth today Stay tuned for a sneak peek of our premiere episode featuring transracial adoptions, debuting June 30th. You can hear us online at OurTruth.Today, ConversationsWith.net, and your favorite podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and iTunes. Just search Our Truth Today. We'll be right back. And next time on Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. I had a chance to grab some Indian food with Mark Hagland, a South Korean adoptee. What is like maybe one really big aha moment that you think most parents finally get after being in the groups? It was hard to figure out how to respond when white parents would say, you know, my child of color is only four years old and I don't want to ruin their innocence by explaining about racism to them. I want them to stay innocent and happy. I say, imagine if you had a little daughter named Susie who was three years old and you said to your friends, well, I am so afraid to traumatize my daughter by explaining to her about traffic safety and that she could be harmed, so I'm just going to let her run into traffic and be crushed by a car. And then when she's lying in the ICU with all her bones broken, I'm going to pull up a chair and we'll have a nice conversation about traffic safety. That's basically what racism is like. It would be far better for your child not to have the experience I had, which is a profoundly traumatizing experience of racism as a first experience without any preparation. And when I tell my traffic safety story, the white parents You've been listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on conversationswith.net. You can find us every Sunday night on your favorite podcast provider or at ourtruth.today. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please take time to give us a five-star review so others can hear us too. And follow us on Instagram at ourtruthtoday. Opinions expressed are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the show's producers or hosts or advertisers. Certain reporting comes from KHN. Kaiser Health News is a nonprofit news service covering health issues. It is an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente.